you have returned to Season 2 of the Logos of Experience and Truth podcast, where I continue this journey of unlocking the hidden mysteries of the beatific vision of God for you, the spiritual pilgrim treading upon the narrow path. Prepare yourself. Episode 14 The Conscious Spiritual Journey Begins Welcome back to the Logos of Experience and Truth podcast. If you're catching the rhythm of this season of the podcast, it's very sequential. I spent a great deal of time plotting out my database of spiritual journal writing and note-taking in a sequential manner with these eventual podcast episodes in mind. I personally find great value in seeing the various steps along the path, the experiences that stimulated or blocked growth, along with the decisions made that furthered me along my spiritual journey. I hope that you find value in this as well, especially as we move along and you start to see more of the cyclical nature of time alongside the linear method of seeing time that I'm plotting out for you. Many of the things I'm speaking about right now return in the future and were already mentioned in summary in Season 1. Many of the things I begin to learn and assimilate into my mind at this early juncture mature and return in full knowledge in the future. Many of the things I read but did not understand at this point are revealed in full in the future. So just as I stated in season one that I had a mini-revival ten years ago where the mysteries returned and were attempting to penetrate my mind further, though I was not ready for it at the time, they all returned again cyclically in almost the same exact patterns and symbols seven to eight years later. The same applies to many of the things I saw and experienced from this early time period that I've called the awakening experience and the expansion of the mind. I obviously can't run through absolutely every single experience I would now come across, but I will do my best to at least speak about the primary ones. And what I mean by primary ones are the ones that cyclically returned in the future with greater force of understanding and revelation regarding the depth of the mysteries as they existed in the ancient world when I've spoken regarding classical mythology, but also the Christian world after classical mythology. I've already given a snippet of it in describing my near-death death experience and that for some reason I slept for three days afterwards and how strange and what does it mean and how does it match the time frame found in the mysteries of Jesus the Christ but I will work through more of these other mysteries to delve into these philosophical and theological concepts further. But I will still speak about these things in a linear fashion. I've already plotted it out in a general timeline since I can't remember the exact dates for some of them, so the way my mind has typically worked throughout my life is based on my geography. Though I wasn't a military kid, I was moved around like a military kid, and the way my mind has framed experience A or experience B is based around the years I was living in apartment or house X or apartment or house Y. So each of the next several experiences that we'll dive into all occurred after the near-death death experience end of March, beginning of April 2001, until I left West LA in the summer of 2002. If the near-death experience was the snowball that hit me over the head, what transpired over the next year to year and a half was the avalanche that followed. I was never a competitive kid or person, or rather, I lost interest in competitive type activities that kids get into because it didn't seem like my parents cared at all, and so I stopped caring about such things as well. But in the third grade, I won a contest for the most books read. 
I mentioned somewhere that in the third grade, I read the Odyssey front to back, even though I didn't understand everything I was reading. But the words entered through my eyes and into my sub and unconscious where they were stored, nonetheless. Once Mary Jane entered into my life in the eighth grade, I would say I lost this part of myself, along with love of learning music, which is weird since most musicians that do drugs gain the music through the drug use, or I stopped caring about and playing the piano when smoking weed entered into my life. But I also said that I've never considered myself an addict since I would periodically stop everything I may have been doing at will instantly to finish a paper or study for a test, so I'd still from time to time go through spurts of reading. Summertime was when this would happen to the greatest magnitude since not having access to buying the drugs or hanging out with friends throughout the day that wanted to steal liquor or smoke weed, my mind would return to itself. This always led to heavy bouts of reading over the summertime for me, when hordes of other kids wanted nothing to do with sticking their noses into a book. If you haven't noticed yet, even after 13 episodes, I was and am weird like that. It's also why I hated school so much. I never felt like myself while in school. It was only during the summertime when I was out of school that I felt like myself once more. Freed now from the influence of hard drugs, freed now from the influence of marijuana, freed now from the influence of alcohol even, my mind needed to find an outlet. And find an outlet it did in reading like a madman once more. While we're on the subject still, before moving forward, I said in a previous podcast that playing video games was the lesser of two evils, but that I've wondered if maybe it wasn't, considering how long it took to break that habit compared to breaking the bud-smoking habit. This is when it took place. If you don't understand transmutation, or don't understand in a scientific sense chaos versus order, or the principle of entropy, at least as it pertains to your own self, to your own being, and not just in an external universal sense. Let me touch briefly on that here as it pertains to obsessions or addictions. Even though my will was resolved at not smoking weed anymore, since the mind had acquired an entire lifestyle of seeking weed, wanting weed, buying weed, thinking about weed, smoking weed, hanging with people that smoked weed, it made letting go of the actual smoking difficult. The problem with habits and or obsessions or addictions, if we just say that I was an addict, at least in my case, was never stopping the doing of the activity, it was stopping the thinking of the activity or the culture that exists in the mind of the activity that is being sought and done. Pouring out the liquor, tossing out the bongs and pipes and sacks of weed was a very easy thing to do. In a rush of inspiration, the most hardened of addicts can achieve this and usually have done it. But transferring the culture of thought that surrounds whatever activity is desired to be changed is difficult. Each of the activities that pertain to drinking and smoking weed existed both in the external as the activity actually being done, and then in the internal as the culture of thought that surrounded it, and getting rid of this is the monumental mountain climb challenge, and is the actual transmutation of one substance into another, in this case, the substance of the thoughts of drug and alcohol use into the substance of thought of something else. If we use the idea of entropy or chaos, if you remove something from a space that was once occupied, it's as if the universe seeks to fill that space once more as quickly as possible. If you block a river, it seeks to find another way to continue to flow. This is why stopping something for good is difficult. You can't stop that the mind desires to think and attach itself to the culture of this or the culture of that, especially if you've already created all the neural networks in the brain surrounding whatever it is you've been doing and especially thinking. 
you can only transfer or transmute that existing energy into something else. The mental energy itself does not dissipate or dissolve away. Again, if we remember the law of the conservation of energy, it can only be transferred. It's why the rush to pour out the liquor or toss out the bongs and the pipes doesn't work long term if you don't already know the something else where you're going to transfer all that mental energy that already exists inside of your mind. The vacuum needs to be filled, and if it's not filled with something else of equal or greater capacity, I'm trying to remember what other scientific law this concept is. Inertia is flashing in my mind, but I think it's something else. The habit within that is trying to be changed or removed will remain, and the mental energy surrounding it will press upon the mind to return to the existing, even though no longer wanted activity, because it has to go somewhere. So what I actually liked about weed and the weed culture and smoking weed wasn't the high of smoking it, wasn't the people I was hanging around with, nothing like that, which is weird now that I think about it. When I zeroed in on what I liked, much later mind you, but I unconsciously understood this principle at this time and applied it, what I liked was spending the money to buy the weed. That I had the money to buy the weed and that when I spent the money, I got the weed. Obviously, I wish I had chosen to spend the money on like buying stocks or something, but that's not where my mind went since I'm a practical person. Every time I bought a sack of weed, I spent 60 bucks on an eighth and my mind found something that cost exactly 60 bucks as well and gave me something then and there. And I thus transferred that enjoyment of spending 60 bucks on something over onto the new thing, which happened to be video games. It broke the weed habit utterly, like I said. I never bought another sack of weed, but it also created a new habit that to my mind at the time was the lesser of two evils, though I don't think that gaming was evil and didn't even have this concept during this time. I just knew that I had an itch to spend 60 bucks on weed while I was trying to stop smoking it, and whenever that itch overpowered me over the next few weeks to months, I'd head over to the electronics boutique at the Westside Pavilion and buy a new game. Now, it's not like I didn't already play video games. I grew up on Nintendo and Sega Genesis, but they were played as a pastime, as fun. And though I spent seven years with my mind attached to seeking smoking weed on a constant basis, I would spend the next 16 years with that same itch on playing video games. I broke it a couple of times during that span, for two years at one point, but it always returned in the attempt at multitasking, until I remembered how I had overcome the bud smoking by transferring what I liked about it onto the games and realized that I had to do the same with the video games. And even though alongside the gaming, I read and studied massive amounts of works for 16 years, it was like nothing compared to what I began doing at the end of 2017 when I finally broke the habit and most importantly, the culture of video gaming thoughts from my mind. So while I was dealing with this during these first few weeks after the near-death experience, I also began to read and study once more, along with journal writing, which has been that sustaining activity of self-guidance that has always led me to the door that I needed to walk through next. But I wasn't studying just yet. I knew I had seen and experienced God, or at least what I assumed to be God, but since I didn't know God, not really, I knew I needed to study about God. Regardless of my lifelong appearances in Catholic and Episcopal churches, even at this early stage, for some reason my intuition impressed upon me that I needed to learn what the world had to say about God, not just what the Christian world had to say. There were differences and I needed to learn and understand those, but that all spoke of God, the spirit world, etc. meant that any and all descriptions for God or the spiritual were open game for me. That was the approach I began with. 
though I still began with Christianity and the Bible since it was what I was familiar with while also not being familiar with it. It's kind of an interesting story. I think maybe I mentioned it in another podcast when I was talking about the Catholic and Protestant thing, but this is where it occurred. I didn't have a Bible. Scratch that, maybe I did. Maybe someone had handed me one while I was at school, but the thing was never opened. I think that's how it was. I had a Bible, but there was something about buying my own that was important to me since it meant I was being serious about studying this spiritual stuff, and it was my choice versus just reading whatever somebody had given me. Important unconscious things to have understood, especially since at the time I had no further concept of the differences of the types of Christianity that existed, and thus the translations of the Bible of Christianity that existed as well. When I mentioned the Evangelical Christian Television Channel in the previous episode, I say that in retrospect, since I didn't even know the differences between the Protestant sects of Christianity, especially the Evangelical. There I was, again at the Westside Pavilion in the Barnes & Noble, in the Bible aisle, staring at this massive shelf of the many and varied versions of the Bible that sat on a Barnes & Noble shelf in 2001. I knew there was Catholicism and Protestantism. I knew it existed, but since the only thing my mom told me was different between the two when I had asked at some point in the 4th or 5th grade was that the Catholic Church was stupid for not allowing divorce, I assumed, of course, that this was the only differentiation between the two. It can be difficult to discern the difference, especially as a child. My mother and stepfather took me and my sisters to Episcopal churches, the times when my father would go through some spiritual seeking he'd go to a Catholic church, and since my grandparents would go to the Catholic church whenever we visited there or the handful of family members that did remain in the church did things, like get married, I was inside the Catholic church. Yet everything looked and moved exactly as it looked and moved in the Episcopal churches I was going to with my parents. Or vice versa, actually, since the Catholic Church is older, everything in the Episcopal churches appeared to mirror everything in the Catholic churches. The procession, the prayers, the order of the readings, the psalm, the second reading, the gospel reading, the homily, the prayers recited, the blah, 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 leading up to the taking of communion, everything the same. So obviously, as a kid, mom said it, so that must be what's different between the two. And honestly, what I can remember coming across in school, in history class, during those brief little paragraphs of religious history that were still allowed back then, was pretty much the same, along with the idea that England and the West didn't want to be subject to the evil Catholic Church and listen to the evil Pope of Spain or Italy, since this meant less freedom somehow, and England and America were all about freedom. So this was the sum total knowledge of the subject that I possessed in my head as I stood there at the Barnes & Noble in the Westside Pavilion, staring at the various Bibles in front of me, comparing them for purchase. Since my primary objective was learning everything I possibly could about what had already been written about God, unconsciously seeking the points that related to the experience or vision of God, though I didn't fully know this is what I was seeking yet and not seeking so much the booming, commanding voice of God, something which I think I quickly lost sight of, but that's the nature of things. Since this was my primary objective, I knew I needed a fat, giant Bible, or the Bible with the most pages in it, since I wanted to read all that I could about God's relationship with humans and humans' relationship with God. Then I began looking at the table of contents and started seeing that this Bible didn't have these sections within it, but this one did, And then this other one had those removed chapters in a little side book called the Apocrypha that you had to buy separate. So it seemed like a scam to me to get more money out of my pocket because why didn't they just keep them in the Bible? This one had red letters to denote when Jesus was speaking once you got to the Gospels. This one didn't. 
and I kind of liked that the words of God were highlighted in red. If I felt like it, I could just read the red letters and skip all this other exposition and it'd be like God was the only one talking. I don't know how long I stood there doing this. I must have looked lost or ridiculous with all these Bibles in and out of my hand, but in the end, the practical side of me won. I bought the New American Bible because it had the most sections in it, and I wanted to read as much as I could about what people had said about God over the centuries, and I liked that when God spoke in the Bible, the words were in red. I thought it was just a rip-off and a money grab that this other Bible didn't include these other sections in the primary text, but were trying to charge extra for it, even though I liked the white cover and binding to it more than the floppy black cover and binding on the Bible I did wind up buying. Now, the other thing that occurred here was more of the same practical side of me. Not a single one of these Bibles in the Bible section had this entire other gospel that was called the Gospel of Thomas. When I read on the back cover that it had only recently been found, I figured that was why it wasn't in this old school Bible and why it was in a separate tiny little $20 book. And it was also this practical fact that led me to choose the Catholic Bible over the Protestant Bible. I wanted to buy this Gospel of Thomas, but also wanted all these other works that weren't in the Protestant Bible. And since the Apocrypha cost 20 bucks, but the Apocrypha texts were in this New American Catholic Bible, I could buy this New American Catholic Bible and get all the works of the Apocrypha from this Protestant Bible and still buy the Gospel of Thomas for the same amount of money. Done deal. Who could have guessed just how much this single moment, this single purchase would mean and do over the next 20 years? I'm actually quite shocked as I draft this. That small detail of the Gospel of Thomas was just remembered. I knew there was a reason for drafting this from pure memory and ignoring my millions of words of notes. I didn't have that detail in my notes. I knew I'd purchased it during this time period, but had forgotten that I chose the Catholic Bible because it had these other works found in the Apocrypha, specifically so that I could also buy this mysteriously found Gospel of Thomas and wind up paying the lesser amount versus buying this nicer-looking white Protestant Bible with its little accompanying Apocrypha work and the Gospel of Thomas. So I saved 20 bucks that day, got all the Christian biblical and gospel texts I wanted, and essentially framed the entire next 20 years of study and meditation in a single pop. Beginnings, the foundations of that which is built upon it. How interesting considering my becoming Catholic while still studying and piercing through to understanding the mysteries of the mystical Gnostic texts. I bought two other works. I can't remember how soon after this purchase. It may have even occurred on the same day. But the other works of import are Dante's The Divine Comedy and a collection of various wisdom sayings of the saints. I think once I started to read Dante in particular, I also bought some type of encyclopedia of angelic and demonic stuff since obviously studying hell and the devil was of great import to me, but that was pretty much it. I told myself I'd get to reading other religions once I was done with this and began. This idea itself was a synchronous event that came to me that I remember clearly. I was sitting in the commons area or lunch table area, whatever it's called in Santa Monica College, trying to map out the order of the books that I was going to read. I was going to start with the Bible, of course, then the Gospel of Thomas, then Dante, and interspersed in the morning and at night, I would read a page of the sayings of the saints and journal write about it if I felt like it was inspiring me, purposefully, while also journal writing and taking notes of the same feeling of inspiration while reading the Bible. Then I would venture forth into reading the other works of the world religions like Buddhism and Hinduism and Islam. The major religions, of course, is what I was focusing on studying. 
I know I'm leaving out Judaism, but again, at the time, the sum total of my understanding of what made them different was that they believed everything in the Bible other than Jesus, and that's why there was an Old and a New Testament. So I figured I was getting most of the goods, at least of Judaism, by reading the Old Testament, and is why I forced myself to read it since I had that early Christian attitude for a moment of why bother with the Old if the New is where it's at. But I overcame that since, again, I wanted to read all that I could of what had been said or spoken about God, and that included the Old Testament. And yes, I was that super nerd that literally forced himself to read through that god-awful book of numbers and the list of the genealogies found within so that I knew in my mind I had actually read the Bible entirely front to back and would never have that feeling in the back of my mind of needing to go back and finish the book of numbers. But as I was sitting there, mapping this path of reading and learning out in my head, I asked myself or questioned myself if this was a good plan, if this plan made sense. And instantly, as some girl was walking by, I can't remember if she was talking into a cell phone or to a friend she was walking with, but the exact words that she said, since I remember I watched her mouth moving, so I knew she spoke and I wasn't just imagining it. The exact words were, yes, that sounds like a great plan and what you should follow. I'm about three to five weeks removed from my near-death experience and the stronger drug use here at this moment, and two to three weeks removed from that one or two hits of weed I'd had as my second to final weed experiment. My heart was pounding. I suddenly became afraid. I started looking around the lunch area, wondering where that swirling vortex ball of light of mental thought, pain, and suffering was going to appear, and holy shit, this is happening in the daytime, since I realized everything else I'd seen had been at night, but this was in broad daylight. I guess it can happen during the day as well, I thought. I double-checked myself. I really did see and hear her speak, right? She wasn't talking to me, but she was talking to me somehow, or something was talking through her. Had I voiced what I was thinking aloud and didn't realize it? Was I thinking out loud? Were those presences still around and following me? Could everybody still hear my thoughts like on that death night? Why and how did that girl just answer and respond to the question that I thought I was asking myself in the confines of my mind? Was this evil or was this good? Was this the devil or was this God? I'm obviously expressing it how it happened to show that I had zero concept of synchronicity at the time. I just want you to understand that when I talk about it, especially during these early time periods, I'm not talking about it or referencing it as if I knew what the hell was going on, In fact, it terrified me during these early months when I would see and experience such things since I thought the vortex world of the vision was going to manifest into reality and put me to the test again, and I seriously didn't want that to happen where others would see me staring into nothingness and freaking out. It wasn't so much what I saw or heard or experienced, but that I was somehow seeing and hearing and experiencing since if you listen to the previous two podcasts, I had a worthiness issue with these things occurring to me, so it was difficult to overcome that attitude and accept what I was seeing as anything other than negative because it didn't seem like anybody else around me was experiencing the same stuff. I thought there was something wrong with this, that seeing these synchronous events was somehow a bad thing, but I still saw and recognized them when they did occur. This moment here was simply the first time I was conscious of the experience and didn't try to slam it out of my mind as I had with the fires of hell incident, even though as mentioned prior, once I started meditating, I could see the other time such things had occurred, though I had become completely unawares or had ignored it through skepticism. 
my plan in place, I began to read and read and read and take notes and journal write and comment about what I had read, commented about what I had written and read and read some more and rinse and repeated. I don't remember everything in the Bible, wasn't capable of memorizing everything and don't see the point in that, though I do respect those that can remember a line from the Bible if you toss a chapter and a quote at them, but I read it front to back in about four weeks' time. In fact, the experience reminds me a lot of the Odyssey reading I mentioned in the third grade, that even though I knew I couldn't possibly remember or understand everything, I knew that something would be laid in my mind just from the process of moving my eyeballs over each and every word and from the completion of reading it. Then I read the Gospel of Thomas. I remember my initial thought was, why wasn't this part of the Bible? Because many of the sayings in it were almost word for word the same as in the canonical Bible. But then there were other sayings that were just off the wall and bizarre. But with zero study about the history of the compilation of the Bible or the history that had occurred from the time of Jesus to the time of the canonization of the Bible in my mind, in my own mind, through comparison and the context, I was beginning to understand I could see why it should have been in the Bible, but then also why it hadn't been placed in the Bible. Not much more to say other than the greater, deeper depth of unraveling its meanings would not come until 17 years later. This being 2001, the internet now past its infancy and stepping into its childhood, I managed to find a website online that had many other Gnostic texts about aeons on its web pages. I say aeons because that's literally all I remember about these Gnostic texts as I came across them back then, specifically because I had no idea what they were referring to. The only other thing I remember about them was the Gospel of Mary, specifically when the Da Vinci Code came out, since I couldn't understand what all the controversy was of that Gnostic book and text, since I had actually read the text and it was so fragmented to be literally incomprehensible. The same rang true with many of the Gnostic texts. They were so fragmented and reading these fragmented texts was such a chore that I quickly grew annoyed and bored at reading them. But much like the Bible, whatever texts were on that website, I read them all. I don't remember the website's name. I'm sure there were very few websites in 2001 with Gnostic writings on them, but I read them all, regardless of whether or not I understood fully what I was reading, further ingraining these various words, ideas, and images into my unconscious and open and expanding mind. Then I began to read Dante. In the opening of my book, Lucifer Revealed, I give a detailed account of my feelings for this work. I knew of the work prior to reading it, but other than the murderer in the old Brad Pitt movie 7, using the work as part of his master plan of killing people he felt represented the seven deadly sins, I had little to zero knowledge of its actual contents. And I know it may sound strange, but it was actually reading through Dante when I remembered just how much I had read in my life, since even though I had to read the footnotes for many of the various contemporary figures he placed in his work, Many of the mythological names, the ancient philosophers spoken of especially in the opening, Virgil himself as his guide, many things I had brushed upon at some point or moment in the past was remembered. So reading it was almost like being given a key to unlock the contents of my mind and memory that had become obscured over the previous near decade of smoking weed. And I mentioned it prior, but here was when the inner reflective capacity to read something and to apply what's being read to the memory of the self and to see that the experience of reading this particular work that this particular human being in history had written and thus experienced began to be experienced by me. Or let me word it differently. I don't remember what circle of hell it was or what circle representing the seven deadly sins I was in. 
But at some point within the inferno, I realized that I was reading and seeing many, many of the same things that I had done or thought about doing. And there, reading these characters in the grips of their own self-created torment, I knew what awaited me if I did not repent and that I'd been given a taste of it already. Obviously, it's hard to know which of the many sins in the divine comedy Dante had committed or experienced since he never really directly spells it out. It seems to have been lust, considering the cryptic things that Beatrice says to him about the thoughts he had of her. But either way, I took the example of the work itself as having been Dante's reflective examination of all the ills that he was conscious of that he had been part of, the work itself being a reflection of that since he had to think about each of those sins to be able to write them down. And I put the book down, closed my eyes, and meditated for the first time consciously. I began to conjure up the memories of all that I had done and thought in my life that now, having read the Bible, knew had offended God and began to ask mercy and forgiveness. I don't know how long I sat there doing this first on the couch and then on my knees on the floor, two, maybe three hours or so, sifting through memory after memory of action and thought that I knew deep down had been wrong, not just for those affected by it, but upon myself as well for having done or thought it. And so, we return to a few of the comments I've made hypothesizing what these mystical visionary experiences may be. Because if you understand what I was doing here, I was performing the examination of conscious prayer that St. Ignatius taught. But what I was also doing was consciously drumming up the memories of my life and acknowledging within myself how it had harmed me and others. I was consciously performing the life review that the spinning, swirling, ringed vortex ball that looked like a rotating planet Saturn had shown me in the near-death experience. If I'm being honest, since it's only recently that I've been contemplating what these visions actually show, or at least were actually showing me, I have only just realized this specific comment in drafting this podcast episode since it's a question I've been asking myself and have slowly been receiving answers to over the past couple of months. I'm sure all that have had the near-death death experience in which they saw and experienced a life review, once back in the land of the living, having seen and experienced what was seen, spent time reviewing their lives in detail with the microscope just as I did. So the vision showed me the life review, I was acknowledging responsibility for my actions, and then this led me to further ask and receive forgiveness of God during the mystical experience. Here, reading Dante, after having traversed through several circles of hell, much like I had traversed through the land of the dead and the living hell while under the influence of the drug I had smoked, that which led me to death's door and the death experience, I then suddenly experienced seeing my life flash before my eyes in the mystical experience again, though at a much slower pace, and through Dante, was reviewing my life consciously, and both experiences led to repentance. I know it's difficult to understand what I'm saying since it's difficult for me to explain, but my theory is that what is shown in the mystical experience is the present and the past and future since it occurs in a timeless state, but that in a way that is unknown at the time of the experience, the vision that is shown during the experience is somehow repeated and re-experienced when one is once again conscious and back in the land of normalcy or the land of the living, and here it was for me reading Dante, trudging through the circles of hell, and suddenly becoming inspired to review my life and all the sins I had done and to ask God for forgiveness consciously and not in a drug-induced mystical state. Very interesting realization that the act of creating this podcast episode has given. I probably won't go further into the depths of works read as I have in this episode. 
Just know or try to know why you are reading or experiencing something, but especially reading, or as I posited in the last episode of season one, know why you are listening to this podcast, why you are interested in this podcast, why you have listened this far. Very important stuff to be conscious of as you experience the experience of life through the experience of being yourself. I read many more works during this time period, learned much, questioned much. At some point, I started reading some Buddhist stuff, some of the Upanishads. I may get hate for this, but after 9-11, my reaction to it was to buy the Quran and actually read the text since I wanted to know exactly what was within the work and religion instead of being drawn into the polemics given by the media to judge an entire religion off the actions of a few, so it was here when I read it. This, of course, led me to the poetry of Rumi and some other Muslim and Sufi texts I can't quite recall off the top of my head. By this time as well, it was a new school year, and having regained the full use of my mind once more after cramming reading after reading over the end of the previous school year and over the summertime, I was enrolled in the scholars program at Santa Monica College. I think I mentioned this in another podcast, but another of the key courses I signed up for was a philosophy of religion course, which is where I began to see how far back and how deep the attempt at explaining, proving, and disproving God through philosophic, theological, religious, and scientific methods had occurred over the course of human history. Excellent course, and most likely where I acknowledged that I had no answer for the scientific atheist disproving my experience based on it having been caused by drug use. When we next meet, we'll venture back into more experiences that I had of a mystical or otherworldly nature that continued to drive home the knowledge and reality that I had unlocked or opened something that the veil had been cast aside, that I was seeing the world within the world and it was all around and within me. I think I'll get into dreams as well. That should be fun. Until next time. If you have yet to visit LogosofExperienceAndTruth.com and borne witness to and made the connection of the near thousand images portraying what is seen during the mystical vision throughout all time, all peoples, all cultures, all traditions, the visual representation of the epitomes of science in all religions, make sure to visit and see and judge for yourself if what is shown equals my claim to experience and truth and that which potentially unites all the deeper hidden invisible mysteries of humankind.